What is a design anthropologist? How can design reframe challenges in global health? Why does Montreal have outdoor staircases? I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Tracy Johnson. She is a design anthropologist at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She leads a portfolio of interdisciplinary investments. She integrates human-centered design with the social and behavioral sciences and data analytics. She brings a deeper understanding of vulnerability as a pathway to the delivery of more equitable health outcomes. Tracy leads the designforhealth.org community. You definitely want to check out that website. She was the guest editor of the Global Health Science and Practice Special Supplement entitled Design for Health, Human-Centered Design Looks to the Future. Tracy received her PhD in Social and Cultural Anthropology from Columbia University. Go to our podcast show notes to find the link to subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you for everyone who has done so already. Every week we will deliver curated, cool stuff for you to read about design and health. Do us a favor and go to Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. It's easy to do. Just search for this show on Apple Podcasts. Scroll all the way down and give us five stars. We're almost at 100 ratings. Thank you for everyone for supporting us. And if you have some time, give us a comment. doesn't need to be long. We read each one. They encourage us. Thank you for everyone who has done so already. Now here's my conversation with Tracy Johnson. Tracy Johnson, welcome to Design Lab. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are a design anthropologist. We've had one anthropologist designer before on the show, Dory Tunstall. And for the listeners who haven't listened to that episode, remind us what a design anthropologist is. So the way that I like to think about design anthropology is to actually, you know, some people might say that design and anthropology actually don't go together um, because anthropology is sort of about the past and the present, whereas design is, you know, really resolutely about the future. Mm -hmm. But for me, people construct their present by telling stories about their past that enable them to imagine a better more equitable, more sustainable, you know, whatever, imagine that future that they want. Um, so design anthropology, I think, brings the best of both disciplines together, um, but also very importantly, takes the, elevates the social component through anthropology, elevates the social component of design. So you studied cultural anthropology Columbia University. That's where you got your PhD. I did. What's cultural anthropology? <laughs> well, just like with design, there are many kinds of design, right? So uh -huh. anthropology actually has sort of four recognized subfields, archaeology, uh -huh. linguistic anthropology, physical anthropology, and then sociocultural anthropology. And so my route into anthropology was through sociocultural. And that really looks at how norms, behaviors, social structures actually influence the way that humans behave. So did you learn, you learned that from digging up bones or like, how did you get your <laughs> source material for cultural anthropology? 
That is a great question. Most people I meet when they learn I'm an anthropologist actually ask if I'm an archaeologist. That is one of the four fields. But uh, no. So you get your source material through the practice of ethnography. And it, through ethnography, you do something called participant observation. So you participate in the life of a community, a culture, a group of people, a set of activities, but you also keep a bit of a remove so that you're able to observe those behaviors and take an analytical mindset to them. It sounds a lot like what happens in design thinking classes, workshops of this direct observation. How much of that is borrowed from anthropology, would you say? So, yeah, th that's another really great question. I often talk about the fact that design borrows the practice of ethnography, but ethnography is really just a practice. And so what anthropology does is it takes that practice and then takes the results of that practice and ethnography and analysis of people's behavior and runs it through the lens of social theory. Mm. And so what I think you get with ethnography is a lot of what people do and how people do it. But when you actually take that anthropological lens, you get a deeper understanding of really why people do it. And, you know, the social, the cultural, the normative drivers of why we do what we do. Mm. And, and I think ethnography, I hear this term a lot, and I think it's used very superficially at times. And maybe especially in some of these like design circles, because what you said, uh, it loses some of that cultural lens that we understand the observation of human behavior. Would that be kind of your critique of how designers use ethnography? So I'm pretty careful about critiquing designers. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that critique too. You know, designers critique me. I critique designers. It's sure. all good, but sure. it's, it's in a way to um, elevate the conversation, I'd say. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, the reason I'm probably careful about it is I think for a long time when I came into the design community, there was this sense that I wasn't really a designer. You know, I hadn't studied the proximal design. And so therefore, should I really be speaking for designers, particularly in the space of global health? So I, I hear that all the time. I'm a physician. I've never right, studied design. Right. And yeah, I right. get that all, all the time. So, so I am very sensitive to how I feel in those settings. At the same time, I would agree with you. I think that design can practice ethnography a little bit superficially. And one of the things that I try to do in my practice is really bring the rigor of the social and behavioral sciences, starting most with anthropology, to the practice of design so that we don't just have the behavior, but we have the social theory to really explain that behavior. So you are a rock star in this intersection of like design in the global health space. You've been advancing human-centered design and global health through your role at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Can you describe some of the very cool work you've been doing there? Yeah, I mean, the work that I'm doing there right now that I'm most excited about is really 
using a design-led approach to draw on the social sciences to understand the question of vulnerability more deeply and more effectively so that we can actually respond to it. My feeling is, is that global health seeks to, seeks to deliver health equally. We, mm. we, our focus is on equality. But really to get to equality, we have to take a road through equity. And to do that, we need to understand what it is that makes women and their families vulnerable in, in different ways, and then be able to respond to those different types of vulnerability. The foundation put out a great resource called Design for Health. Everyone should check it out. The website is designforhealth.org. And when I first saw that, it made so much sense. It seems that human-centered design and global health is a perfect marriage together. And I was thinking, why wasn't this done a, you know, 20 years ago? That, And I guess maybe can you speak into why human-centered design and global health work so well with each other? I think they work really well together because they're both trying to solve complex problems. And so they both have to grapple with the complexity, the messy complexity of human behavior. And so I think in, in that regard, and they're always seeking a better future, right? I mean, global health is about improving the health and well-being of people around the world. Design is about really pursuing those preferable futures. So they're engaged in the same journey. And I think that is what brings them together so nicely, although it is something that has been overdue. So it's nice yeah. to it's nice to be part of what that happening now. How did those resources, how did Design for Health come into being? Design for Health came into being. I I joined the foundation just under eight years ago. And when I entered the foundation, I, I think there was this excitement about, hey, there's human-centered design being practiced in the private sector. How can we bring it into the work that we're doing? But I think there was, I think maybe there wasn't a, a strong understanding of really what design was. I think designers had come into the space with sort of an over-exuberance and an over-emphasis on the notion of empathy, that if you have empathy, you can design better solutions. I think that that wasn't a, a satisfying or helpful definition for the global health community. So there was confusion and design was really thought of from its aesthetic perspective. You know, design was something you needed to bring at the, in at the end. It would make things look better. It would, you know, but the actual, the value of design as a complex problem solving methodology wasn't being harnessed in a really effective way. And that was sort of one of the initial struggles of bringing it into the global health space. And so as I looked around and I realized that folks were really struggling with what is design in this space. And mm. so I worked together with the fabulous David Milestone, who was at the Center for Innovation and Impact at USAID. And we decided, let's bring a small group of us together. So designers, what we call implementing partners in the global health space, and then funders. And then we got together in Berlin and started to hash out, why are we struggling? Why aren't we able to really advance design in the ways that we think we should? 
And, and that spawned this community and essentially the Design for Health website. It's so cool. And there's, it's such a rich resource. You gave a talk on empathy, which I saw, and then you describe empathy as an imaginative exercise. I've never heard anyone describe empathy in that way. What does that mean? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I can go on. If you've heard the talk, I can go on about where empathy came from, which I won't won't do. Let's let's just do like (laughs) a mini version version of it for the audience. And if they want to learn more, we could put the link. We'll put the link in the show notes. Great. So the notion of empathy was a phenomenological notion, and it was really centered on the experience of art and how you might look at art and sort of imagine yourself in the experience that was brought to life by an artist. And I love one of Mark, you know, Mark Rothko actually articulates that really well. He talks about when people weep when they see his paintings, he really understands that because he feels that they're experiencing the same sort of religious transcendence that he experienced when he was actually painting the painting. So in that way, being connected with art, it's all, and that sort of sense of phenomenology, it's always been sort of, how do you imagine yourself mm-hmm. in another's experience? Mm-hmm. And so, but I think the really critical pieces that we sometimes miss about empathy and the reason that I am known within the design world for not liking to use the term very often <laughs> is because our lived experiences are mediated. They're mediated by our society. They're mediated by structural forces. They're mediated by, you know, sort of economic and cultural forces. And so if we use the term empathy to believe that we really can experience something the way another person is experiencing it, we allied those that what really mediates our different experiences. And so I think we have to use empathy in a respectful way. We want to understand where someone is coming from. We want to design for the challenges that they face. And we learn from them as they articulate that challenges. And we want to be cognizant of them. And we want to feel them. But we should never fail to see that the space in between us can't ever fully be traversed, that it will always be there. And so for me, empathy needs to be more of an exchange of experiences as opposed to one person really sort of entering another person's shoes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you can't gain empathy simply through an empathy map exercise. It's a much, it requires much of a deeper understanding. I Right. And that's so, you know, going back to talking about our notion of what is ethnography and participant observation, you know, really spending time with people embedded in their lives and not necessarily, to your point, sitting down in a two-hour session and drawing an empathy map. Yeah. And I confess I do that in workshops. Maybe we shouldn't sure. call it we shouldn't call it an empathy exercise, but maybe give it a better name, I would say. Cause I still think it's a useful exercise for some things, but empathy may not be the right word. 
I think it is very much a useful exercise. And I do, I've used them in my own work extensively, the sort of journey mapping and, you know, sharing, using that as a tool to share experiences. I believe 100% in the exercise. I guess where I came to the challenge with the term empathy was, you know, when I worked in the private sector, empathy, empathy became a deliverable. You know, what? you really? well, like, well, well like, what does know, that mean? Well, you wanted to walk into a C-suite and create empathy in that C-suite. And so it sort of it became an end in and of itself, as opposed to a means to get to an end. I also saw, as I said, you know, I, I saw, unfortunately, designers coming initially into the global health space and saying you need to have empathy. And what struck me was most of the people who work in global health, they believe they have empathy. They've devoted their entire careers. I mean, you're a doctor, right? You believe that empathy probably is part and parcel of why you do what you do. So this notion that empathy would carry so much weight, whereas really it's just one piece of the process to getting to how we understand another individual's life and then how we design better to improve the health outcomes or the challenges that an individual faces. Let's talk about another word maybe we both don't like, but I use. Uh, <laughs> the, you're not a fan of the word user. You prefer humans. <laughs> why, why is that? I feel like you, yeah, I feel like you've explored all the terms I don't like. It makes me think about <laughs> Wow. How do I, how do I structure my speaking engagements all around things I don't like? They'd have to change that. But, I, um... I went, I went on the internet. <laughs> so I guess, I mean, a user connotes that a person is in a particular moment in time and interacting with something as opposed to a human sort of connotes the full breadth of who that person is mm. and the social structural drivers of their behavior across the board, not just in relation to a particular website or to a particular tool or to a particular drug or treatment. So I feel that human captures more the diversity and variability of who we are across our life journey. Mm, I like that because I think sometimes there's a similar analogy to the word patient, where yeah. I feel like sometimes it is an appropriate word. Sometimes I look at that human in context of their disease in the moment of time, maybe I'm taking care of them in the emergency room, but there are other times when that human doesn't necessarily need to be defined by their disease. I hate this labeling that we do of calling a human by their disease, chronic disease, like diabetic you know, instead of that's a person with diabetes and not a diabetic. Okay. Uh, so I, sometimes I even use the word human in, in a medical context to demedicalize the patient. Yeah, right. Because, you know, if we really want the person who is challenged by diabetes to be able to enact the necessary life changes and adhere to certain types of medication and certain behaviors and practices, we have to understand that diabetes is just one element 
of who that person is. But I agree with you that there are times when the person in front of you is a patient in that moment and you need to address them that way. And and I do think that when we're designing website, we're designing, you know, certain types of tools that yes, you need to think about the usability requirements. But there are many times when we need to go beyond the user to the whole person. In 2019, you wrote a great article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And here's a quote from the article, the human-centered design approach can help the health community shift from prescribing solutions according to a perception of people's needs to identifying solutions that actually meet their needs. Can you give some examples in global health of how the former happens? That is, we're prescribing solutions according to the perception of people's needs. So I think where global health has been challenged is it's hard to spend time in what we call more of the upstream space where, and that's where you see sort of issues of culture and social structure, you know, coming together to form a complex set of challenges for an individual. And so do you mean like, like those like non-medical factors, like social determinants? Yeah. Health, like social like determinants. Housing, yes. Uh, income, um, education. Okay. Yes. The social determinants of health. And so we focus more on the downstream space to sort of drive individual behavior change. But I, I think that as much as global health has had experiences, like there was a, a drive, you know, throughout the history to do things like participatory action research and to try to sort of learn and understand people's experiences. Pause. What, what is that for people who don't know? Participatory action research? So, Participatory action research, it's decades old at this time. It was a practice in global health where global health professionals would try to bring together people into settings to talk about their particular health challenges. And so it actually had a big footprint in the agricultural sector. So you would have things like farmer field schools and you would bring farmers together to understand their challenges to growing nutritious crops and things like that. So, and there are, there's, I'm sure your mind is already going to the fact that there's similarities between that and the design process. I think what the participatory action research process didn't capture was it captured the learning of the experience. What it didn't capture is how do we quickly turn that learning into design principles that allow us to sort of, you know, generate concepts based on users' needs start to, you know, start to prototype and think by making and actually taking, you know, one of design strengths, turning concepts into tangible outcomes or tangible products that you can put in front of somebody and have them react to it. And so I think global health was missing that piece of it. Like how do we, how do global health professionals who empathize and have deep experience working in the field How do they actually translate that into design principles that you can take into actually creating solutions? And I think design came in and enabled that better. And so it was less a question of how do I make you change this behavior or, and make is probably too strong a word. How do I encourage you to change this behavior? How do I encourage you to take this treatment and more 
how do I create the treatment or the health behavior in a way that I am taking that to users? I am making it easier for them to do as opposed to thinking that the users need to come to global health and change to meet global health. Mm. Can you give maybe some examples that might illustrate of how the latter of identifying solutions that actually meet their needs in global health? So maybe I could give you an example of how design has helped to reframe the challenge, yeah. to reframe how we think about the challenge. So one of the issues that I'm working on now is the question of home birth. We know that women who give birth in facilities are likely to, if they have any challenges with the birth, then those challenges can be attended to right away. And so mm -hmm. the mother and the child are likely to have better health outcomes. So we're looking at the fact that there are populations of women who continue to give birth at home versus a facility. And so the way global health looks at that is, I was actually just thinking about this, the way that global health would express that is what is the burden of mortality that can be decreased if we scale up interventions for women to give birth, either give birth at home or give birth in their communities. And when we take a design-led view to that, we can reframe the question so that it recognizes that a woman's decision to give birth at home versus a facility is really influenced and her decision to do that and her ability to act on that decision is really influenced by behavioral, social, economic, structural factors that act as thresholds to care. So we can change the question to be, what impacts a woman's decision as well as her ability to give birth in a facility as opposed to giving birth at home. Mm -hmm. So rather than start from the global health challenge and the question of mortality or morbidity, we reframe it to what challenges the behaviors we want to see? What impedes a woman mm -hmm. from giving birth at home? Why does she decide to give birth at home versus in a facility? And once we understand that, we don't just try to it's not only about driving her to a facility, but it's about recognizing how all of our solutions can meet her needs better. Yeah. It's asking better questions. Right. Right. It's asking better questions and it's taking that we talked about complexity. It's talking about that messy complexity of human life, and it's breaking it down into tangible problem sets that we can then, we can design solutions for one by one. We can solve as smaller problems as opposed to the big overarching problem. Yeah. And I find that frustrating too in healthcare delivery in the US where, you know, I, I work in an emergency room that we're so focused on the downstream. And yes, I need to do that. I need to stabilize patients. You know, if someone yeah. has a, a gunshot wound, I need to go, okay, how am I going to stabilize that patient so they don't die? But there's not enough space to think about all the upstream factors that led to that happening. Right. And so let me give you another example of why it's important. And it, it relates to the pandemic. So you know, 
flashback to the summer of early summer of 2020. And we, we see the pandemic and it's taking off in Europe and the United States, right? And China. And in the foundation, we're really concerned with what's going to happen on in India, what's going to happen across the African continent. You know, how do we try to get in and start to avert the crisis? And I had been doing, I have a project called Pathways that looks at the social, environmental, cultural, economic vulnerability, social determinants of health that produce vulnerability to poor health outcomes in women and their families. And we had just come out of a long period of design research, of ethnography, behavioral decision-making labs. And so we'd spent a lot of time with women across multiple geographies in Kenya, for example. And we knew these women. And so we knew we could get in touch with them and start to ask them, how are you experiencing the pandemic? What is happening for you? And we started to hear stories, you know, one woman shared with us, and I should also say, this was also a really great effort in sort of decolonizing design because the designers who came from Europe, Canada, the United States, they couldn't travel anywhere, right? Mm. We were all at home. And so we were really working through our Kenyan designers, our Kenyan researchers, and really sort of learning from them. And we ultimately really had to follow their lead. They were in the field. They were doing the work. They were making decisions in real time about what stories to pursue that would lead to deeper understanding of how these women were experiencing the pandemic. And I remember one story that was shared with me was about a young woman with three children. And she our, our researcher stopped by her house and she said, you know, I'm practicing social distancing. I'm not leaving the house. And then we started to see that, in fact, people were coming into her house. And in many cases, they were the fathers of her children and she needed them to come to the house. She couldn't leave. She couldn't make any money. She couldn't go pick up washing for many of the families that she'd wash clothes for. And so she needed to make sure that people were coming to her and bringing food and, you know, bringing the, the resources that she needed to raise her three children. Her, and they were young children. And so we saw stories like that. We also saw stories of women who had COVID and who were started to be ostracized within their communities. Again, really sort of closing the walls around them. But at the same time, we weren't seeing a lot of people who actually were contracting COVID. And so there wasn't a high burden of the disease, but yet at the same time, the efforts that we were taking to ensure protection, you know, social distancing, ensuring that people stayed at home, that meant that the way these women throughout Kenya were experiencing the pandemic was as a socioeconomic crisis. Mm. And so when I brought that to colleagues at the foundation, you know, some of them said, but it's not a socioeconomic crisis, it's a health crisis. We need them to practice this, these behaviors to protect their health. And I said, we definitely do. But if we don't come to them in the knowledge that how, of how they're experiencing it, if we talk to them that this is a health crisis and you need to protect yourself, but they don't see it as a health crisis, they see it as a socioeconomic one, they're not going to be able to listen to us. So how do we give them the same advice while taking into consideration that they need to make money, that they need food for their children, 
that they depend on social ties and social networks to, to live their lives. And until we recognize that, until we speak to them with that recognition and that realization, why will they trust us? You know, why will they trust us? Why will they believe us that this is a health crisis that they need to consider? So, so sometimes those, those social determinants of health are, we may not be able to drastically change them, but we need to understand them in order to really understand the situation that many women and, and their children and their families are facing in, within global health. I love that. That's a, it's just a great example. And I'm curious to know about your own journey because it's a diverse one. You went from getting a PhD in cultural anthropology to working in various organizations like USAID, private sector, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I'm curious to know what is the role that creativity played, if any, in that career path? So first and foremost, becoming an anthropologist, I was born and raised throughout Southeast Asia. And so I think I've always, and moved around a lot as a kid. And so I think I've always had a little bit of a perspective that I'm a little bit of an outsider sort of looking in, and that got me really interested in anthropology and really understanding not just what people do, but but why they do it. And perhaps even more importantly, why they often say they do one thing, but they actually do another thing. And so anthropology was really critical to me. And then I came across design after I finished my PhD, and it felt like, wow, this is a chance to take this very heady social theory, very conceptual stuff that I'm doing in anthropology and actually apply it to making things for people's lives and hopefully making people's lives better. And so design became the way of actually, you know, how do we tell people's stories in a creative way to get people to get our audiences to understand them and care about them? And then how do we continue using the creative outlet of design to, to design better lives for people? I love that. Um, I have so many questions and we're running out of time, but what was that first spark that got you interested in design? Did you like read a book? Did you attend a conference? Uh, okay, I, I will tell this story. So I think one of the things that really got me thinking about design, so I like to tell a story about staircases. And staircases are a designed part of our reality, right? We, you know, we everybody needs to use a staircase at some point in their lives. And I was living in, this probably isn't a story that like first, I don't know what was the first spark for design, but so I was living in Montreal for a while. And anyone who lives in Montreal knows that the staircases to buildings are outside of the buildings. Oh, they um, are? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And so, and Montreal is a beautiful city. And as you drive through the city, you see beautiful townhomes and you see these circular, somewhat circular staircases off the front of the buildings leading to the different apartment levels. So a three-story townhome will have a circular staircase leading up to the top, stopping at the second floor and so on. And if you've ever spent a winter in Montreal, you almost certainly have found yourself sliding down one of those staircases and landing rather unceremoniously on your bottom, on the <laughs> sidewalk. <laughs> so, 
And as I dug, having experienced this, as I dug into it, I found out that many of these buildings in Montreal were built at the turn of the century when there was a huge influx of immigrants. And Montreal at the time was a very Catholic city. And so the Catholic church got involved and they became very concerned as these buildings were being built that as sort of as townhomes, as multiple person dwellings, that young single immigrants would be meeting each other on the stairway inside the buildings in the dark. And, you know, what would happen? So they decided to put the staircases on the outside of the building. And when you think about that design component, an architectural component that took into account what the Catholic Church wanted in terms of people's social behaviors. And then you think about, and I don't know, you're a physician, you may not know this, but there are several years ago, the new sort of, the new sort of attention in architecture and, and in, in sort of interior design spaces became staircases. And staircases were started to be designed really elaborately, oftentimes very beautifully, mm. because in fact, think about it, the staircase is one of the few places where we all look up from the devices that we carry in our hands. And so rather than a staircase just being a means of transporting a person from one place to another, they became reimagined as sites of exchange because you weren't down the rabbit hole of your digital device, but you were looking up and you were perhaps open to that serendipitous conversation and that momentary exchange. And so that's the creativity I see as coming out of design. You know, how do we, how are we designing our lives? How are we designing our spaces? How are we designing the devices that we use to enact the social life that we want for ourselves? And I think we've made many mistakes along the way, but we can harness the power of design to correct those mistakes. Well, thank you for advancing design and global health. And I will never look at a staircase in the same way again. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on the show, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk with you, Bob. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tracy Johnson. You can find her on Twitter at T-R-A-C-Y-P-I-L-A-R. Reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram on Twitter. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.